Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Jennifer Cho Salif. We have a really exciting episode today, which I will subtitle TV Party. When we were planning for this episode, what we all got really excited about was this idea that we might be in what Tina Fey has talked about in her shows as the golden age of television. We started talking a little bit about, is this a golden age of storytelling? Why or why not might that be? And what things have gotten us excited about the past and, and where we've come from, from a storytelling perspective, and some of the things that are happening in both mainstream and maybe off-the-grid media at the moment. So we thought with the new um, you know, traditional start of programmatic television upon us that we would talk a little bit about narrative storytelling in this episode. So really excited to talk about that. Um, and of course, you know, if you're listening and you have thoughts, we'd love to hear from you as well on what you're liking, what you're not liking so much, things you're looking forward to. But before we jump into all that, we thought we'd level set with a little bit about where we've come from. So I'm a complete media nerd and, you know, coming from my days as a film major, Actually, thinking about the first course I ever took on campus at Emerson with Professor Harmony Wu, which shout out to Harmony Wu. I don't know if she still has this website, but this professor had this website at the time that was Bone Thugs and Harmony Wu-Tang Clan. She's amazing. (laughs) I don't know if you're out there, Professor Wu, but shout out to you and your website. I should check that out. I love that. And I'm looking that up right afterwards. You should. (laughs) She's fabulous. She's totally fabulous. Anyway, enough about Professor Wu, but a little bit about her because what we wanted to frame with was how we got to where we're at with TV. And there are a lot of really exciting things happening in the way of narrative storytelling on television right now. A lot of it falls out of where TV started, getting its humble beginnings in the format that closely followed radio, things like variety shows and a mix of live performance and you know scripted performance with radio dramas. That obviously was something that TV was able to do in a different way, you know, and bringing in the visual piece of it. <laughs> CBS presents this program in color. Tonight, from the Ed Sullivan Theater on Broadway, The Ed Sullivan Show. And then, of course, straight broadcast of world events, like the president giving an address on television or chronicling things that might be happening with the royal family and everybody tuning in to see weddings or whatnot. Where things started to go was this episodic content where people would follow a storyline. And eventually that became water cooler type shows. You know, people in the 80s were all tuning in for Miami Vice or Dallas or Dynasty or things of that nature and wanting to talk about them at work the next day. From there, you know, you started to see kind of in the 80s, but really going into the 90s and the early 2000s, this idea that these shows were starting that you had to watch week to week to really follow the plot. 
Um, They weren't something that allowed you to really pick up and watch one episode and know what was going on. You had to have some familiarity with where the characters had been and maybe where you wanted to see them going in the future to feel invested and to really um, have that quote unquote uh, addiction to the show. Something that was a little bit more binge worthy, um, which is where we are today. I think the change of platforms and formats of watching TV were also very reflective of the style of storytelling throughout the decades. Um, So when the the episodic TV, the birth of the sitcom through in the 1950s, it was all very aspirational and presenting this way of life that everybody should have been living. And I think probably led to a lot of uh, insecurities in a sense or people like why isn't this my life so in the 50s you had Ozzy and Harriet father knows best leave it to beaver you know that nuclear family mother father two to three children perfect white picket fenced house everybody eating around the dinner table and there was always at the end of the day this very moralistic rap to the show um, and then as everything we, had like a tidy little bow around exactly it. it was always solved at the end of the day with a laugh and a you know and a um and a shrug <laughs> um <laughs> like oh gee um but then as we got into the 60s where you know things both economically and socially began to change the role of being your own self and and being an individual was much more celebrated and and tv got stranger so suddenly these sitcoms that were these nuclear families suddenly you had things like the twilight zone and bizarrest things like gilligan's island and green acres (laughs) that were kind of quirky but then even like things that started touching into the occult because you had like the monsters adam's family bewitched i dream of genie like hitchcock hitchcock yeah so it was which at the time we don't think about it now but alfred hitchcock presents was like really revolutionary because you had this director who was taking that onto television we are so used to seeing all of these things in our lens of seeing them as reruns and and living in a world where that wasn't so where that doesn't seem as revolutionary as it was at the time um but so you you went from that that like you said that tight tidy bow of the 50s kind of the stranger 60s but then i think you know a real turning point was the 70s where you know we found ourselves in this post-vietnam war atmosphere there was socioeconomic racism uh the economy, everything was just tumultuous. And suddenly that TV that was presented, that aspirational TV had given way to more, almost, I guess in a sense, it could almost be considered the first reality TV, even though it was still in the lens of sitcoms. And I, to me, the godfather behind all of that is Carl Reiner. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. You had All in the Family, which spun off Maude and the Jeffersons, which dealt with race, women's rights. They they tackled abortion on a sitcom, Hmm. Um, you know, and things like Good Times, you know, uh, MASH. You know, so and I remember being really young, you know, in the late '70s when all of this was out, and you know, almost being aware of when those shows were on. Like there was just a different tonality to them. So I think just in that short amount of 20 plus years, the ability to turn a mirror on society that may not have been as attractive was welcomed 
by the viewing audience, you know, and then, but, and then again, just like the times changed, then we went into the eighties and we went right back into the opulence and the wealth of episodic, uh, soaps of Dallas dynasty, Falcon Crest, uh, Miami vice. It suddenly became that, um, more is more, um, you know, gloss. So that the grid of the seventies gave way to the sheen of the eighties, which, was also very, you know, you can compare fabrics you saw in the 70s to fabrics you saw in the 80s were very much woven into the fabric of television. It reminds me um, just of the 80s also, just the era of Reagan, you know, and you had shows like Airwolf and Knight Rider and like there was like... A-Team. Yeah. It was like all about um, fighting the MacGyver good MacGyver and mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> just... Very Americana. Very Americana. You know, like front and forward. Yeah, hailing the military and American might and... Well, and I think it's a good point because what Brian's kind of gone through is how one, you know, truly on a, when you look at it on a decade by decade basis, how one decade builds on or juxtaposes the decade that came before it. I think that with storytelling, part of what makes it work, especially when you think about genre storytelling, is having a baseline. So, for example, the Jeffersons wouldn't have worked if you didn't have, you know, Ozzy and Harriet in the 50s because you have to be able to have a foil so that you can show differences and make meaning out of the stories that you're telling. The stories that were being presented in the 70s and 80s, also both in dramas and sitcoms, were the onset of episodic storytelling, whereas it was no longer tied up in a tidy bow at the end. Sometimes there were cliffhangers or a running storyline where you had to tune in the next week to see what happened. Um, there was That was you know, this time where uh, a sitcom even would, and, you know, my friends and I always have this joke about sitcoms. Sometimes there would be the serious episode. And, you know, a lot of times, at that time, you, you remember they would say, All in the Family was recorded before a live studio audience. And you heard the very natural laughter. You heard the gasps when something was revealed or, or something was said. And, but every episode would always end with, applause and clapping but there would always be every now and again so my friends and I call it the cough shuffle where an episode might have dealt with death or drug addiction or or, you know or or a cliffhanger and there was that deafening silence of no applause as the audience as the episode ended but you would hear like a cough and a shuffle in the audience it was always like piercing like oh this this is ending on a really dark note. Um, so people would wait for that next week to be able to tune in to see what happened. And they would, you know, the episode would start with, you know, last week on, and they would do a brief recap. And then finally you were back into that, um, to that episode to get the answer that everybody was buzzing about or cliffhangers like the infamous who shot JR or who did what, you know, as opposed to a daily soap opera that even though they're drawing it out, you get the answer fairly quickly. Whereas, which brings us into how we are consuming television now, where you can wait for a whole season to come out, and that's hence the birth of the binging, um, where I almost feel like something's lost. You've lost that um, that wait. You know, you're you're um, immediately satisfied with what is the next episode, so you can get the answers a lot quicker. Brian, I think that was a really good point because you know back in particularly in the 80s and the, I would say in the 70s and 80s I think there was a heyday of filming sitcoms in front of a live studio audience and we've kind of moved away from that but it seems like we might be swinging the pendulum back on some of that with especially re, uh, kind of retreads of things like Full House 
um, and other sitcoms um, that are playing off of people's nostalgia. But I think what it comes down to is people want content viewing to be a social experience, um, particularly with narrative storytelling. You know, people want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of a community that watches the same thing so they can talk about it. Um, you know, I know, Jen, you actually, uh, back way back when, had the chance to attend a live taping. What was that like? Yeah, I was in high school, and my friend and I thought it would be so fun to go see a live taping of Roseanne. Hmm. And um, I grew up in Orange County, which is an hour away from L.A., so that was like a totally different world. And, you know, we were 16, we had our license, like, yeah, let's go. Let's go up to the studio lot. Um, so we drove up there, and it was like this entire, I mean, it was hours and hours. You know, we get there, we had to wait. And it's very much like seeing live theater. Um, you know, there's the stage, but it was just, it was such a fascinating experience. Um, first to just to see the actors in real life, right? You see them on television every day in your living room to see them actually there. Um, and then just to see how, um, everything works. You're watching it live. I mean, you're watching a performance that's live, but at the same time they have to take multiple cuts, you know, about the same scene. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, different angles. Somebody messes up their line. Um, Roseanne, you know, during takes, she'd start cracking jokes with the audience and, um, John Goodman would join her. And, um, so it was what, a 27 minute episode and it took, I think we were there like eight hours, six or eight hours. Wow. Yeah. It was a really, really long experience. I Mm. think we came home. It was really late. I think I remember freaking out because I knew my parents would be mad, but it was totally (laughs) worth it. And, and it was so cool to be, you know, like they had games for the audience and it was like this fun, so it really was social, social yeah. communal experience. And then, um, to anticipate that episode airing, what I mean, that, that was, that was really fun. I think it was the Halloween episode because oh, we oh, went, that's yeah, iconic with that show. Yeah. Was it was episode. really fun. Well, the recording and the production of television shows in front of a live studio audience outside of talk shows and you know this uptick of variety shows and and um game shows really doesn't exist as much as it once did and and again i think that sound of a live audience laughing and reacting like i think of shows like happy days where they literally would like kind of cat call when a certain character would come on you know it really became this cultural like yeah when Fonzie came on or when Joni came on you know there would be you know literal like you know whoops (laughs) you know for lack (laughs) of a better I don't know how do you describe that yeah and that it became and but also or even shows like I Love Lucy where you almost crack up more because of the audience laughing you know whereas um, there are certain shows where you could tell, like I remember like the Brady Bunch, for example, you could tell it was canned laughter because there was always like one certain laugh that I would hear that they would always use in the same strategic way. It's like when somebody was up to no good, like it was kind of like a lower laugh. So it became very canned because it was. And so I do think that attempt to capture the live communal you know, reactions, you could tell the difference between the authenticity and, and the the recreation of that well and I I think we're going to get into this a little bit later in the podcast but I think that's what the audience is missing is that ability to be a part of things be a part of the story be a part of something social and so I think it's kind of interesting the trajectory that things have taken in terms of you know how you can be a part of that conversation Mm -hmm. and how people are choosing to be a part of that um, online or you know even in person you know through things like watch parties but then of course how they're joining the conversation 
um, tuning into podcasts or what it, whatever it might be, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But it's a it's a very important part of consuming content to want to connect with other people and not just have it be something that you watch and forget. And I think that's what makes content either you know kind of successful or or lets it be something that we forget very quickly. So I think Jen's experience is a great example of that live broadcast era because as a fan of television, you could experience the live recordings. If you were at home, you could watch the live television. And then as Brian talked about, you have to wait each week to, you know, when it's to be continued to catch up on that story the following week. But if you weren't following it all along, you can also see it through the reruns. That model still applies today. But what we saw in the on-demand era was introduction of new technologies, new platforms to experience storytelling through these different methods. What I love about that transition from live broadcasts to on-demand is that the story is still there, but the mode or method of experiencing that story has changed. Something that I remember from growing up is that my Uncle Tom always talked about my my Aunt Carol watching her soaps or her quote-unquote stories. So it just really spoke to the idea that there's a story that people can really get involved in. They understand the different characters and they become a part of their life. So that transformed or transcended into the on-demand era, but the format or mode in which you experience those stories changed. So I think everyone remembers when TiVo was created and it was even featured in Sex in the City as this new technology of how people could pause, you know, these live broadcast shows and go backwards or go to the bathroom or grab some popcorn, whatever it might be. You know, that led to the introduction of Netflix, which is sad because that's what TiVo could have been if they really would have been pushing mm. themselves. They um, came out the same year, didn't they? Pretty close, pretty close. And, and and Netflix really started out as like the DVD subscribe solution, but they did start to introduce the online video um, subscribe model. Well, and to be fair, I mean, there were video providers like Blockbuster who tried to get in on that game too. They were just a little bit late to the party. Exactly, yeah. And I think a lot of people remember Comcast DVR too. That's my first experience with it was just being able to record your shows ahead of time, watch them when you want to on demand, um, or again, pause it just like a, a TiVo situation. But then you start to see other mediums come into play. So for example, the the Sony Playstations and the Xbox 360s of the world's coming in and trying to provide content across those platforms. So to introduce a different touch point to uh, experience those stories. And then YouTube became a much larger player in allowing people to create their own user-generated content. And we also know that a lot of people are uploading um, video content to YouTube, um, whether that be feature films or short films that are out there and then people can engage with as well. So a lot of what you're talking about has to do with the platforms where people are consuming this content, but it also has to do with the content being created by these platforms, right? Yeah, that's the the major difference between the on-demand era and then the streaming era is that these different platforms are now creating content. So YouTube is really about the users being enabled to create content. But then what we see in the streaming era is the introduction of Netflix creating content, Amazon creating content, and Apple. Um, But before we jump to that era, let's talk a little bit about the on-demand era. All of us enjoyed the the live broadcast era, but I think the on-demand era introduced this idea of, of community um, people started to get really excited about the different shows that that were out there. Right around this time, I think the other thing that's really interesting when you think about community is that people started to watch shows and it became a part of their identity. If you were a Sex in the City watcher, for example.
Jen, I know that was one of the stories that you paid close attention to around the time. What did you love about it when it was out? I loved sex and I loved the city. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's set in New York and it followed the stories of these four really ridiculous characters that like in each one of them, you kind of aspired to be like, you know, Samantha, crazy wild woman, self-assured in her 40s and really didn't give a shit about anything. And you kind of aspire to be like that. Miranda, the lawyer, very career driven. And then Charlotte, you know, the socialite who really doesn't have to work and has this amazing art gallery job and um, wears these beautiful clothes. And then, of course, Carrie, just the She's that free spirit. And so I think women really identified with these women in kind of an aspirational way. And also they were just ridiculous. They were nothing like reality, but it was like an hour where you're kind of taken away from your reality. And of course the fashion was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, One just of the other the, thing, like, and you lived in New York at the time, didn't you? Um, or were you not there yet? No, I, I did live in New York. I, I so was in LA and then I moved to New York. But I mean, it was on from 98 to 2004. The show, I don't think you'd ever use the word like feminism with that show. Like, I don't think that's the first thing people will think about, but there were so many ways where I felt like that show was was very feminist. Well, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of content being produced that had a female protagonist. Yes. And and truly, um, you know, all of your main characters were female. Yeah. So even still in Hollywood, that's a struggle. Um, I think the other thing that, you know, I remember hearing all the time, and it's kind of a cliche at this point, but there were so many people I knew at the time that were like, oh, you know, I moved to New York because I saw, I, <laughs> I saw it on Sex in the City. I wanted to be here. It's just the, you know, it kind of was all part of that rebirth of New York. It was cool to live in New York at that point. Yeah, the show was more about, like, the sex. It was really about the city. Mm-hmm. It was this love story to the city. And and I lived in New York. Um, I moved there six weeks before 9-11. And so I just um, had this, it was just like, it's, my, it's like a beloved city when you go through something like that with... It's weird. It's like having a love affair with a city. How is that even possible? But I feel like that show really addressed that and how the show was pre 9-11 and post. I think they just did this beautiful job of telling that story without being maudlin or tragic. Um, Talk to us more about that, because some people might not be as familiar with how they handled some of that. Subtle and um, didn't hit you over the head. I mean, I think the storyline really followed. Yeah, something happened. There was nothing direct. There was no, um, it wasn't in the script. Like, I don't remember there being anything in the script about 9-11 happened. And, and like, it didn't hit the the viewer over the head with the storyline. You know, like, this is how my life changed. But it was, it was very subtle. Um, One of the things that I found inspiring with what they started to deal with in the latter seasons of the show, which would be kind of what you're talking about, is that they started to get a little bit more real because I think there was a lot of criticism around, you know, because people identified so strongly with these characters and they were aspirational, as you say, in a lot of ways, they wanted to see them be more real, so they started weaving in storylines about, like, well, you know what? Carrie probably can't afford all of those Manolo Blahniks on a writer's salary. Probably not (laughs) so real. And this was around the time that I think we were kind of rounding the corner into the beginning phases of a recession. So I think that that's a really good example of 
you know, sort of art mirroring life and trying to figure out how not to alienate your audience when you have great content that is sticky that people want to engage with and are engaging with over a long period of time. Um, how do you need to change and adapt? So I think that's a perfect example, Jen, of, you know, what do you do to use these storytelling platforms to still give your audience what they want while still being able to tell the story that you want to tell. So Jen talked a lot about Sex in the City and when that came out, watching it live and how she had sort of a social experience watching it. Yeah, so I think we just wanted to replicate that experience. I wanted to replicate that experience of, um, you know, like when I went to that live taping of Roseanne. And so we'd have watch parties every week, uh, you know, whenever whenever the new episode would premiere on HBO. Um, everyone would come over to our place. My roommate, she was a total TV fiend, and she had all the up-to-date technology I just kind of lucked out in living with her. So we had these watch parties. Um, and it was like 15, 20 people crammed in this tiny apartment in L.A. And we just had such a great time. Just It was, you know, food and drink and y- yelling at the characters and just these outrageous sex scenes and everybody's laughing. Um, it was such a great time. It was something I looked forward to every week. Why are you laughing? <laughs> that couldn't be more uh, like opposite of my experience because I sat oh, in my yeah. living room all by myself <laughs> watching Sex and the City. <laughs> you know, so it's so funny because I was not the target audience for that show. I stumbled upon it because of Comcast DVR. I started watching it and I loved it. So I just, and actually when I started watching it at the time, I think people remember this. If you didn't pay for DVR, they would give you some free version of it so that you could watch some DVRs. Oh, it was limited episodes. That's what it was. So I picked up Sex and City like halfway through it. So I just started there and I started watching and then they would introduce more shows. So then I was going backwards and forwards. So I never watched it all the way through. But DVR allowed me to just pick up that show and I became a big fan of the sh- of, of Sex and the City. So are you a, are you a Miranda? Are you a Carrie? I don't know. I was, I, oh, I'm really hot. I don't know. You must be Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with a microphone. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a Charlotte, I think. <laughs> That's you just want to be married to you want to be married to Kyle McLaughlin. Yes, which is a <laughs> nice introduction. And it's into. the first time I brought up Twin Peaks in this entire <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we did a whole twenty seconds. My experience is with Sex and the City is very similar to Eric's. It wasn't that long ago, but this was pre-social media. You know, they're just the way that you are introduced to um, content was so different back then. Um, so I've seen it through the lens of reruns on E and uh, TBS and whatnot. And whenever I say that to people, they're horrified because you know, because <laughs> I'm not seeing it in an episodic way. And I kind of know heavily yeah. edited. I, yeah. I was going to say, like, yeah. and I know that's what everybody says. They're like, and I'm really just watching the city. <laughs> I know the ebbs and flows of the storylines, but I, I've never really seen them all completely glued together in the right way. Which so one day I'll have to go back and watch it from the. The very beginning, especially because of the fashion, I think you would really love it. Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I I've seen a lot of episodes, but it's just it's definitely not been in an uh, linear fashion. One of the things that that show did a really good job of too was product placement, because there were a lot of uh, movies and TV shows at the time were just so heavy-handed about it, and that show did a really great job about weaving the product in, whether it was 
the pair of Manolo Blahniks that's, you know, iconic and Carrie going into the Vogue closet and finding the Mary Janes. And Apple computers. Apple computers. I mean, in, they were there, but it wasn't distracting, I don't think. You know, personally, I you know, w- or I should say it was less distracting than other applications at the time. So that's another really important evolution in content itself is an advertising vehicle. Because if you go all the way back to television, uh, you know, in its beginnings, in its infancy, it mirrored radio where you actually had a special announcement from an advertiser. Um, and as content started to migrate to some of these paid platforms like HBO, Showtime, whatnot, you didn't have commercials. So you had to find a way to get that in and pay for the content itself. And so weaving it in in a seamless way became very, very important. And I think it's going to become even more of a challenge as we now see ourselves in vehicles like Netflix and Hulu and whatnot, where, yes, you may pay to subscribe, but is that enough to generate um, great content, not just good content? So they have to figure out the revenue model. So what are some other examples like Sex in the City that came out on kind of the, the cable stations that introduced this new way of storytelling? Well, I think, you know, you can't have this conversation without talking about The Sopranos. I think that, you know, it's also another HBO property. What was really unique about The Sopranos is much like All in the Family started to turn stereotypes on its head in the 70s, The Sopranos did that in a very, very different way in the 90s. I think it did a lot of the things that we've been talking about in terms of weaving in product placement, um, telling great episodic stories and doing so in a way that was very modern, but taking, you know, archetypes that we were all familiar with in terms of, you know, characters and giving us an entry point and then taking us on this journey about, okay, well, maybe maybe there is something more multifaceted to this anti-hero in Tony Soprano. Um, definitely water cooler appointment television, that's for sure. Um, we didn't watch it. Eric and I didn't watch it until it was, you know, long off the air. And um, because at the time I didn't have HBO when it was airing. And, you know, even years later, I think it really did hold up. It's a really great piece of television. And when we watched Sopranos, it was actually a great example of on demand because we started the show from the beginning and we watched it when we wanted to. And we did the same thing with Lost. We didn't watch that live. We watched Lost on Netflix. So we could we binged all the way through that entire series. And I think that was similar for a lot of people once they started to use Netflix in that way so that they could watch an entire series at once or on demand when they wanted to. So I think a really important point, given what Jen has said about community, is that a lot of people are using streaming services in order to catch up because you may not have jumped on the bandwagon early enough with a piece of content, but now everyone's talking about Game of Thrones and you don't want to be left out before the season finale airs. So I think people are experiencing content the same stories, the same pieces of content in different ways. They may experience the first half of a series in a very condensed format because they're binge watching it in order to catch up and then they're watching the rest of it in live time. So I think there are some really interesting implications for what that means in terms of your relationship with the content and how storytellers need to change the way they think about telling stories like it needs to be able to work as a piece of binged content as well as something that will provide um, anticipation or opportunities for anticipation between episodes so i think there are a few different mindsets here there there are there's the mindset of the person who wants to catch up and make sure they watch the show before the finale then there's the, the person like Hallie who wants to go back and analyze what happens from a film perspective, storytelling perspective, and really get into the detail. 
Yeah. So I'm a little bit obsessive when it comes to all those Easter eggs that might get dropped into an episode. And so for me, uh, part of the joy in consuming content is going back and rewatching. So, for example, right now, I cannot wait to go back and rewatch Twin Peaks all 18 episodes start to finish. <laughs> it's be like my dream to just sit down and watch them all in one sitting. It's never going to happen. But I would love to do that. I did it with Mad Men. I've actually gone back and rewatched that series a couple of times. I thought it was fantastic. And what was great about it was you you feel the content in a different way when you go back and rewatch a series because you know where it's going to end. And so being able to see how they built to that and what mechanisms they were using and why what happened in season one, you know, is somehow important or as important, um, but maybe in a different way by the time you get to the end of the series um, is something that, you know, I really I, I get a lot of joy out of, you know, when I go back and rewatch series is, you know, how did how did they set us up and what did we not catch the first time around? So I think that's that is one of the benefits to having streaming services um, available because you know there are a lot of discussion in the directorial community about like not wanting people to binge content because they feel like you can't take as much in you forget things um, you know you're not spending as much time with the characters you're just trying to get it all in at once um, and it cheapening the viewing experience but I think for the purpose of rewatching. Um, it's really valuable to people that just love content, love great stories, and want to go back and experience them in a different way. So we kind of blurred the the line between the on-demand era and the streaming era. And that transition is really important to note because in the on-demand era, people still truly enjoyed those experiences. And the idea of binging really came into play with the streaming era. The streaming era brought the platforms of Netflix, Amazon Instant, Hulu Plus, HBO Go, MLB TV has their own station. Time Warner Cable TV has their own online application and, then, and platforms like Roku. So we talked a lot about the idea of streaming and the way it changed your viewing. But it also brought in this new idea of the static and the technique and those changes there. One of the things we have seen is the change in dimension as far as the framing of shots and the proportions. When television first started out, I mean, you really did have this like formatted for TV. I mean, it used to say it at the beginning of movies that were, you know, reformatted for television because they were being shot in widescreen and, you know, televisions were not set, you know, at the time, um, the majority of content was not being broadcast that way. There's a lot more content that is being broadcast in widescreen now. And in fact, the bigger discussion is how do you make content mobile friendly? Because there are a lot of people that are subscribing to services like HBO Go or, um, you know, Showtime on demand or things of that nature. And they're watching things on their phone or their tablet. And how do you optimize that experience so it doesn't just feel like a piece of content that was made for another platform that you're experiencing on a, on a mobile device? So that will continue to change as well as the the length of these pieces of content. So, you know, rather than you know, having everything wrapped up in a tidy bow in 30 minutes, um, inclusive of commercials, you're now seeing storytellers experiment with length. So whether it's the extreme of David Lynch making an 18 hour television show that's parsed out into parts or short format TV, you know, you're seeing everything across the board. Um, and that pertains to advertising as well. You know, whether it's the five second ad that was introduced on the Super Bowl a couple years ago or doing true, um, you know, long format ads. You know, I think you're going to see everything in between because um, there's the ability for a lot more flexibility in, you know, both um, paid content and broadcast content. The other thing that's obviously changing 
is the technology. So, you know, whether it's the cameras you're shooting on, you know, the migration from film to digital and now back to film, or if you're shooting on some kind of device that is lower resolution, you know, there are feature length films that are shot on an iPhone now um, and TV shows that are shot that way. Or, you know, if you're looking for user generated content and that's what you use. I know Jen has talked a lot about um, the programming that her kids are most interested in, and it's not network television. Yeah, it, there's this big thing now. It's um, toy reviews, and you have these random people in different parts and corners of the globe, and all they're doing is opening up packages, opening up toys, opening up video games. And, I mean, these people have, like, millions of followers, and it is such a lo-fi, simple concept, but, I mean, it's... You know, you're in the driver's seat. Like, I can see Caden or Izzy, or especially Izzy. It's like she feels like she's opening up that <laughs> that gift um, or that Shopkins. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah, for us, it was like after-school TV, right? For them, it's whatever they, whatever video they want to search on YouTube. And, and she knows all of the top YouTube toy reviewers and who's hot, who's not. It's amazing. Whole other world. It is. Yeah. The other thing that you made me think about when you said after school TV, I remember when I was in high school, I don't know if you guys remember this, but my so-called life aired and it wasn't very well watched. It didn't have a lot of viewers. And so they went back and actually started airing it like after school hours. Yeah. And I believe it was on MTV. Mm-hmm. And I remember like rushing home from high school to watch it and loving it. And there are a couple of shows that have, you know, that have gained viewership when they came back in syndication or now when they're streaming. You know, I think about I think about shows like Arrested Development that didn't have the viewership, gained the viewership through streaming, and then actually had so much popularity that they went back to create another season. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why we're seeing some of these shows come back um, because while they weren't popular at the time, they found their tribe later on and people that really wanted to interact with that content. And so now there's a way to be more segmented in content creation and get it to the people that actually want to watch. And I think there are people, like just coming back to that YouTube example, I think there are pockets of, um, of these users that are trying to generate that appointment television again. So for instance, Kaden is really into Minecraft and um, there are these gamers that they'll have these videos, like their tips, how to play Minecraft or how to create this new world. And now it's coming to the point where, you know, he, on the weekends, he's like, oh my gosh, you know, Diamond Minecart, he, he's got that new video that's, gonna, that's coming up and he's going to, sh- he said last time he's going to show us how to build this world and that world. So to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that is his appointment television. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no Saturday morning cartoons anymore. I remember my brother and I would get up and we can't wait to watch Smurfs, you know, and it starts at eight o'clock and couldn't get us up for school Monday through Friday, but Saturday we're like yeah, up. Right. Right? Rating, but there's no. And there was actually new seasons anymore. of Saturday morning cartoons. I remember the Friday night before would be the preview of like what all the, what's coming on the next day and just being so excited. Yeah. And yeah, that was an, ex- you were up from like, from seven to like 12, you were just in front of that Saturday morning television. And it was all connected. They had these like interludes between the different shows that were all connected through Saturday morning TV. It just, it created that experience and you didn't want to step away from the television. That's a tragic loss. (laughs) Absolutely. That was a golden time. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I think we're starting to get into with this segmentation idea is that, you know, not to be negative about it, but I think a lot of TV over the eras 
was built for what I would refer to as sort of like a generalist audience or kind of the lowest common denominator. And so, you know, what you were looking to do was kind of please the most people with content that tended to be a bit more universal. Now what we're seeing is a lot more niche style content. So, you know, even entire networks that are that are built around specific pieces of content like Lifetime or, or Logo food or Food Network or, you know, so it's very specific to their audience and being able to, you know, if you want to watch somebody making, you know, beautiful food all day long, um, there's a place for you to do that. And I think that that's giving us the ability to tell deeper stories, richer stories um, for the audience that we're that we're gearing towards. The other thing that's starting to happen, which is fascinating, is that there is no off season anymore. So back in the day, you know, content would start in the fall. You'd have, you know, a 13 show run and that was it. Now people are experimenting with, yes, the length of the show, but summer is no longer an off season. You know, it wasn't, you know, in the past it was when all the reruns were were coming out or um, it was a place to experiment with game shows, which, you know, we've seen a lot over this past summer in 2017, but we've also seen shows that have launched specifically over the summer, like Game of Thrones. And I think the reason that that's happening is because, especially with these pay providers, they see, you know, there's no reason to um, pump the brakes. There's no reason to, you know, have um, less popular content over the summer. People are going to still watch over the summer. So in periods of time when they know they're going to have viewers, like winter and regions like ours where people are not able to go outside as frequently and you know if you're a person who gets very cold (laughs) um, they know they're going to be able to get the eyeballs on shows in the winter so maybe they don't have their most popular shows run then so it's it's counterintuitive to the way television used to be programmed but that's a huge shift and I think it's really important because what it means is that television providers or television networks or channels are taking bigger risks with the type of content that can go on in different parts of the year I'm sort of using summer as a proving ground um, or winter as a proving ground. I think it's, it's going to continue to shift. And this is similar but a, a little bit different. It also seems like there seems to be more space between quote-unquote seasons. Like Mad Men, there was a, a few seasons that were extremely spread out. And they also broke a few into two parts, parts, correct? Mm -hmm. So it just, it creates this different experience of you waiting anticipation, but then you end up just binge watching right through that whole series. That's a little bit about what happened in the streaming era. Now where we find ourselves is in the era of instantaneous publishing. And there are a couple of behaviors that we feel like are changing. Jen, do you want to talk about something that you're seeing? So on this idea about binge watching, I think is really interesting. And it makes me think about this quote from 30 Rock. And it's a scene where Jack is making a business deal with this one character. And it's a really crass uh, way to look at things. But it, I thought it, I think it just kind of succinctly explains binge watching. And the quote, the quote is, you know, they're making this business deal and the guy says, okay, let's skip the foreplay and get straight to the penetration. <laughs> you know, so there's not this courting period. There's not this let's get to know each other. It's um, in, in the case of binge watching, you know, which I'm guilty of, you get enticed and you just want to like, boom, just like a means to an end. Right. You just you, you can't wait. So, for instance, there's been a lot of shows where um, 
I've done a lot of binge watching and particularly they're all on Netflix. They're Netflix produced shows like Stranger Things, Into the Badlands, Daredevil, a lot of these Marvel um, series. And even with Netflix produced documentary series like uh, The Making of a Murderer and The Keepers. Um, and I think it, I mean, it's exciting to do the binge watching, but it's kind of like when you eat like a, a bag of potato chips, you feel really bad about it afterwards. <laughs> and I always feel very sad after I've finished that last episode and maybe it took me two or three days to watch, I don't know, seven or eight episodes since like it's over. It's That's interesting because I have watched the first episode of The Crown and I was obsessed with it and I would only watch an episode when like I had all my projects done. It was like a reward. That was months ago because it was the winter when I was watching it and everybody keeps asking me like what did you think of season one and I was like oh I absolutely loved it but I still not watched the last episode because I found myself like constantly watching like how many more to the end how many more to the end because I was already beginning to mourn the end of it so I've yet to watch the final episode knowing that season two is coming so that's like my bridge so I actually have almost done the opposite where I've self-imposed I actually, now that they don't exist, I'm creating my own cliffhanger in a sense. Because you're, you're disciplined, <laughs> Brian. Disciplined. Dis- no, but Just I think like that's a member of the royal family. Yes. <laughs> you're, you you um, restrain yourself. No, I think that's exactly. so great, though, because I find a big problem with binge watching is when the next season comes around, I don't remember what happened because mm, I jammed mm-hmm. it all mm-hmm. together. And then they're referencing things that happened the season before. And I'm asking my husband, whom watching, you know, and we've been wa- binge watched together. I'm like, Carlos, what is she talking about? I have no clue. And yeah. it's because I, maybe so I just have great, horrible short-term no, memory. I think that's or a great example of what you talked about earlier, Hallie, is that people are maybe not being as thoughtful and, and that connectivity with the storylines and the characters is being lost throughout this process of binging. Absolutely. So, Jen, you are proof that binging is unhealthy. You're doing <laughs> it wrong, Jen. <laughs> I just can't help myself. But I think it also plays the other way where you can argue that well, maybe that's the joy in it is that you get to experience it a second time. You watch it for a first read and mm-hmm. then you get to go back and experience it again before the next season oh, comes absolutely. out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, it depends on what you are looking for out of your content viewing experience. Eric, I know that you had another behavior that you were observing. Yeah, another behavior that we're seeing is the death of privacy. So now that everything's focused on the idea of the community, a lot of these shows build their own culture or subculture. You're seeing the behaviors respond to that subculture. So, for example, with Walking Dead, there are groups of people that have made the expedition to the city where the show was filmed so that they can be there and see some of the the set. Also, the idea that they can participate in the zombie school or even be an extra. So they've created this reason for the viewer to become intimately connected to the show. And it's now this idea of this this community around it and actively participating in that show. In some ways, the most important behavioral evolution that we've been talking about is the birth of experiential content. And I'm totally living this right now because, as all of you know, I'm completely obsessed with Twin Peaks. And (laughs) this is like the most extreme form of this, uh, this behavior. But what I've been doing is watching each episode, and now it's over, sadly. Um, But watching each episode, the day after each episode, I actually have 
two Twin Peaks podcasts that I listen to. And on top of that, there are online forums, which I'm not as much into, but I know a lot of people that are like really into talking about like, oh, like let's debunk this theory and what actually happened <laughs> to the episode and, you know, what does this mean and what reality are we in? And there's just so much to kind of like delve into with a series like that. Um, but it's not the only series that behaves that way where you have like this whole other way of participating in the conversation with the community. Um, in large part because of what we talked about before, this is necessary because, you know, it's not like Miami Vice where everybody was watching the same show in the 80s and talking about it at the water cooler. Um, there are too many segments to talk about this with your peers, you know, sometimes at work. Nobody else at my office is talking about Twin Peaks <laughs> other than me. So I need a place to talk about Twin Peaks. And, you know, similarly, there are people that are that way about Game of Thrones or project runway or the bachelor or whatever it might be and so these people you know might be you know to jen's point having a watch party and talking about it in person there or they might be experiencing it in other ways you know via some of the other media that's out around the stories um same thing that's happening in the literary world with books you know you see the novel itself you know i think when twilight came out it was actually this way very much so where you had twilight and then you had a bunch of fan fiction and then there was the movie and then there were the online communities and then it took off and so media uh, so it that's that's one way that it can happen but people just want to be a part of the story and the narrative and in cases where you have stories that are a bit more complex there is a lot to talk about and it's a way to extend your experience with a piece of content so that's fascinating and I have no doubts that that's something that's going to continue and it's going to continue to evolve as media changes as well so we've covered a lot of ground, but what does that mean, Eric? What does all of this mean for advertisers and marketers? I think it really starts with understanding what your, your content strategy is because it, it really begins with where the content originates. If it's through the mainstream platforms like ABC and I'll even put HBO into that category, the syndication model is very different because then it could be on Hulu, it could be on ABC.com, it could be experienced through reruns, it could be on Netflix. However, if it originates on emergent media like Netflix or Apple, the syndication model is a little bit more limited because it goes direct to that outlet. So, for example, if it, if it originates on Netflix, it can only be experienced on Netflix currently. I think we'll start to see that changing so that those platforms have more touch points for syndication. So that, that's a big point to focus on because when we think about product placement, if origination starts with the mainstream channels, then you're going to see more opportunities for impressions because of the multiple touch points. So as an advertiser, you have to think about that. But I think we all have to agree that these emergent channels are growing. They're starting to take control of content creation. So they will find ways to make sure that they have these multiple touch points for impressions, for viewership, which will then directly relate to product placement and increase dollars through advertising. The other thing to think about as a marketer or advertiser is the audience adoption. So depending on who your target audience is, you need to understand, are they a laggard? Are they part of the majority? Are they part of the innovator segment? Depending on that segmentation, you then need to think about the appropriate way to start your content strategy for origination, whether it be mainstream or emergent channels. 
But as we talk about this idea of syndication, it's really important to understand, does syndication even exist? One of the things that we've thought a lot about is, does syndication truly still exist in its most pure form? So back in the day, you had a show, it might air on ABC, but then it would pop up years later on TBS. Um, you know, and it would just live on in perpetuity, you know, in syndication. Seinfeld is a great example of that. Frasier, these kind of shows that any t- I feel like any time I turn on the television, somewhere one of these shows is airing. And those shows work really well in syndication because you don't, they're not dependent on what happened the last show. They aren't truly episodic. At least most of their episodes are not op- episodic. But now what you have is shows that are not as likely to be syndicated on a cable network. So what does that mean? And does it matter? And if it matters, why does it matter? One of the reasons that I think it matters is because traditionally, the way to vote for more of the kind of content that you like is to watch. And so publishers of that content are looking at things like Nielsen ratings to say, okay, we had this many eyeballs on the show when it premiered. That makes it the biggest premiere of the season. We're going to renew it for another season. So very traditional model. Now that people aren't necessarily um, watching, quote unquote, appointment television in the same way. So, you know, in my case, I might not watch that episode of Twin Peaks on Showtime on TV, quote unquote, when it airs. But I might be watching it through their app and I might be watching it an hour later. Does that still factor into their numbers? How are they tracking things today and how should they be tracking things so that they can see which kind of content is performing best for them and that their viewers really want. So there was a lot of discussion about Twin Peaks because viewership for each episode when it aired, you could say by comparison was low, but there were a lot of people that were watching that through their streaming platform and even more significantly, their subscriptions to Showtime On Demand, their app, were up over 11% for the quarter. And they contributed that directly to Twin Beaks because of when subscribers were coming in. So again, which metrics are we looking at? And how do we as viewers, you know, cast our votes, so to speak, for more of that content? Is it important that we watch it within a certain time frame? So if we know that the providers of that content are going to be tracking metrics on a week-by-week basis versus an air date basis, is it important that we watch that episode during a certain time frame so that we know we're actually ca- you know, casting our votes, so to speak, for more of that content? So again, not, not something that we have an answer to today. And I think that the Twin Peaks example is really important because it tells us that um, properties like Showtime are starting to look at metrics in a different way because they, by all accounts, are counting shows like that as a success because of the subscription model and how it's driving subscriptions. We'll have to, you know, that kind of remains to be seen. We'll have to track things as they go along to see how that starts to change um, in terms of the model. The other question that I think a lot of people have posed over the the last decade is, are things like reality television shows going to start to take over? You know, is YouTube, you know, crowdsourced content going to be more of the norm than produced, you know, what I would refer to as produced television or narrative television? I don't think so. My opinion on this is Shakespeare to House of Cards. People want great stories. They want great content. They want to be involved with that content. The best way to do that is to have produced content that you know truly does have a point of view and has an expert storyteller behind it it's not to say that can't happen from crowdsourced content but I believe there will always be a role for the great storyteller and I think that 
people want to see those stories fully formed. So whether it's the multi-million dollar budgets for Game of Thrones um, or, you know, just really great, talented auteurs telling stories that are complex and require you to pay attention and experience them in a cyclical way over time, I, I do think that there is going to continue to be a role for that storyteller. And at least I hope there will be. Four and three and two and one, one. My bigger boat, of course, has to go out to Harmony Wu, my professor that I talked about at the beginning of this episode, because she did a really great job of giving me a history of television and fostered my love for two genres that are still near and dear to my heart, horror and melodrama. So if you're out there, Harmony Wu, this one's for you. My bigger boat goes out to Ryan Gosling, who will be hosting the upcoming premiere of Saturday Night Live for the season with special guest Jay-Z. And also Ryan will be the focus of the upcoming movie Blade Runner 2049. It's going to be so good. <laughs> and we cannot wait to have him on our next episode. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned. So stay tuned. Exactly. See, now it's out there. He has to do it. My bigger boat goes out to my favorite hip-hop group, A Tribe Called Quest. So this week, 26 years ago, they dropped their second album, The Low End Theory, one of my favorite albums of all time. And this album just was revolutionary, not only for me, but um, just in the world of hip-hop. It was really the first album that connected the dots between jazz and hip-hop. Um, and, of course, I just love Tribe's smart, socially conscious lyrics, and um, just that trio is, um, they're just such characters, R.I.P. Fife Dog. And, uh, yeah, just good music, just really good music. So hats off to Tribe. So to harken back to what I consider one of my favorite iconic, episodic, water cooler, sudsy, buzzworthy, guilty pleasure, though I've never harbored any guilt, twisting, turning, backstabbing, bed hopping, wig spinning, building exploding gem that is the humble apartment complex known as Maro's Place. So my bigger boat this episode goes to the president of D&D advertising and micro skirt business suit wearing connoisseur that is Amanda Woodward played by none other than Heather Locklear. She came in at the end of season one to save what was a very flailing milk toast uh, attempt at a spinoff of 90210 and she turned it into one of the most tribe inducing shows of the early to late 90s. Um, I remember Personally, I was part of a watch party every year for the big season premiere because it always ended literally with an explosion. Her insults were level-setting honesty that were a poison apple delivered with Shakespearean prose. So I'm going to end with one of her quotes. No, No, Allison, I'm going to do do you the way way you did me. And when when I'm done, done, all you'll you'll be left with is that proverbial wish that you've never been born. born. Now, I believe believe we we have clients waiting. (laughs) (laughs) 
This episode of Open Swim is in support of the future of storytelling, who asks, as technologies continue to evolve, how will we create, share, and experience the most fundamental unit of human culture, the story? The future of storytelling, or FOST, is a passionate community of people from the worlds of media, technology, and communications who explore how storytelling is evolving in the digital age. The annual FOST Festival and Summit takes place October 4th through 8th in New York City. Learn more at futureofstorytelling.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.